and non-benders alike. Welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney. And I'm Dante Bosco. And we're going to cut right to the chase this week and say how psyched we are to be joined by one of our two dads for the exploration of the city of walls and secrets. Yes, my friend. And while, of course, we've had both our dads, Mike DiMartino and Brian Konetsko, on the podcast before... This is definitely the first time we've delved into an Avatar The Last Airbender episode with one of the creators of the show. So this feels very special indeed. Dare I say I'm nervous. I know, Varnia. And is your A student tendencies, are they kicking into high <laughs> gear right now or what? Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I'm trying to keep them under control. Play cool, be totally cool as we welcome one of our two dads. How many more times can we say it in this episode? Brian Konetsko, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to see you both. I'm scared. Like, I'm not kidding around. Because when you're talking about the show in the sort of meta sense, yeah. you're not usually doing it with somebody who, like, helped conceive. But you know what? Right. We've done it with Tim Hedrick, so we can handle it. Usually we're talking and we're other guests come on and we're kind of like the senior people that are from the show. So we're the <laughs> ones. We Of course, we ask that they call us ma'am and sir, as you Yeah, do. we're like dropping the knowledge of the show. But then, you know, <laughs> you or Mike come on. Like, oh, oh, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Stop talking like you know so much. Like, let's find out for real. There's no need to be nervous. Don't be. I'm not going to grade you. We're We're not being graded today, Varney. Thank goodness. Well, we are so excited to have you back. I don't think we've had you on since we were so excited to be part of the announcement that the first Avatar movie is going to focus on Aang and his friends. And of course, totally. Thank you for doing that. Dropped it at San Diego Comic Con. The internet broke. That was fun. And yeah, I think think the last podcast I did was uh, talking about Toph, um, which was fun as well but i don't know that i've done a recap no this has its own kind of architecture to it i'm i'm gonna do my best so now i'm the one who's nervous so hopefully the listeners well that's the thing right i mean this was an episode that you thought this would be a fun one to do there's things i love about every episode and you know some came out better than others what whether it was just how the animation came together or um you know the story or or whatever but I just felt like this one, it's not that, oh, this part of the story is my favorite part of the story or something like that. It was just like everything just felt solid to me. Mm. I felt like we were really catching our stride. But when I say we, I mean like everyone working on the show overseas, uh, in, in South Korea, in Burbank, you know, just everybody was sort of like getting some momentum um, and, and we were kind of catching up. I just feel like it's one of our more consistent episodes from beginning to end from like a production standpoint. The script's great. The performances are great. Um, and, you know, all the artists just did a really solid job. So when you're co-creator, showrunner, person watching a show, like all I see are the mistakes, right. uh, you know, and it's it's really hard. And this is one that especially back when we finished it, it was just like, Wow, that's that's pretty solid. That kind of looks like a real show. So I think it still holds up pretty well. Um, and again, there are others I, I, you know, other episodes I love, but this one's just always felt like a really solid punch. Just you know, landed right on the right on the jaw. Just felt good. I love it. Awesome. Let's jump into the show. So here we are. We're entering the fabled city of walls and secrets. And just a quick look back of the last episode of Avatar in which we watched a giant drill breach the outer wall of Bossing Se. But luckily they, you know, it was stopped by Aang and the gang. Yes, indeed. There was a lot of sludge. I remember the word sludge got used by all three of us, you, me, and Kara Mahorn. Slurry. Uh, slurry. Yeah, slurry. I'm afraid that we got real excited about calling it sludge because that sounded worse. Um, so I feel like we... <laughs> We went heavy into muddy slurry. I did a lot of research into slurry when when oh it was clear when we were doing the uh, the drill, which was fun. I was researching tunnel boring machines, and I was out on a, a bike ride yesterday, and I saw like oh what did it say? It was some sort of slurry container. <laughs> it was the first time <laughs> I've seen any evidence of slurry out in the real world. I was very excited, and it felt I'm in Bossing Say. This is great. 
Uh, yeah, that was definitely something we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. Like, very quickly, we were like, this is not a machine that you create just, like, off the cuff. Like, oh, yeah, we'll just figure out how it works. Like, it's very clear that a lot of time and research and effort went into figuring out the mechanics of it and, like, right. how it mimics something in the real world. And, yeah, it was super impressive and very scary and intimidating, that drill. We were talking about how I wanted Nickelodeon Toy Department to, to make a drill, yeah. remote yeah. control drill toy for all the kids in the backyard to dig holes in their ground to their neighbors' yards and stuff. Parents would love it. How great would that we be? We talked about that back in the day. Oh, oh, that'd be great. What a missed opportunity. You could do that thing where, you know, like Aang hits the right spot and then, yeah. and then it just it just shoots slurry all over the house. Like <laughs> I I don't know. We should work on that. We should work that out. That sounds like a great toy. Yeah. Everybody stop what you're doing. <laughs> We're going to prioritize that. Uh, I love it. Of course, in my mind, I was like, but the slurry could also be like a pancake mix. And then you could sort of turn it into a delicious treat. And then it wouldn't be like as awful. Parents would be like, well, we did make pancakes with it. Um, All right. Now, Avatar branded slurry cakes. I think we might have our next uh, uh, Avatar Studios product. It All right. Into food. I'm going to take it into the lab with the team. Okay, great. You heard it here, everybody. Okay, so as we know, this is the episode in which we see Team Avatar really arriving in the Earth Kingdom's capital. The much-fabled bossing say they're so eager to tell the Earth King about the opportunity uh, that they have discovered via the library with this coming eclipse. But um, it's proving to be a lot harder in this episode to just have that conversation than maybe they expected. And we also have Jet, who is real dedicated to exposing Zuko and Iroh, having seen that one time seeing Iroh heat up his tea, feeling like this is an opportunity for him to expose them. We all know what the Fire Nation means to Jet. It's nothing good. And so there's a lot of conflict in this episode. There's a lot of great big themes um, that we can get to in a second. Definitely want to give a shout out to the wonderful Tim Hedrick, who wrote this episode directed by the wonderful Lauren McMullen. And uh, also just a little side note, some of you might even see it coming up as Secrets of Bossing Say. That was an alternate title that came through on some satellite and uh, services. But um, so let's talk about the complexity and, and the many layers of the city for a second. Um, you guys went to Beijing. And uh, I think we've already yep. grilled you on your trip to Beijing when we started book two. <laughs> but I, I, I know in the art book, like, you know, you really call up how much that that trip did inspire the creation of Bossing Say. And now we're here talking about it so um how was it <laughs> yeah bef before mike and i even had a chance to go i think we knew you know we were aware of the forbidden city and, and knew that we really wanted to make that a key piece of visual inspiration for this grandiose city and not just uh, you know the forbidden city is actually it's big but it's not like as big as the inner ring say of bossing say so right. we were um Really wanted to look at that and extrapolate that out even larger, more grand scale. And then just looking at Beijing in general, you know, as, as inspiration. Um, so we had a trip to uh, Seoul to work with, you know, the great animation studios, my animation and JM animation. And we were able to tack on a few extra days to fly over to Beijing and go to the Forbidden City. So we had that as like. You know, it's not like we went there and they were just like, oh, wow, look at this place. We should right. make a city based on it. We were actually like, OK, now we finally get to see it and we can take really detailed photos and experience the layout of it. You know, um, I had certainly seen like the kind of backlot versions of it in a lot of Kung Fu movies and, and, and kind of period, you know, action movies up, up to that point. Um, and then we got to go to the Great Wall. We went to the Ming Tombs. Um, we sat in traffic a lot. <laughs> and then, you know, as we detail in the art book, here's the thing. We kind of had our own Judy. Really? <laughs> um, yeah. Like, at least in 2005, uh, the way that, I don't know, I our great line producer, Micah Mong, I think set up this trip for us. And we had, like, a tour guide. And he was, like, nice person. And, and then we had, like, a just a little tiny car. And there was a person driving. And then we had this tour guide. And he had, like, a placard, you know. It was, he was, like, an official Beijing, like, certified tour guide. And, and we were, like, oh, we're going to go to this place and this place. But then we started realizing he'd be, like, oh, do you like Jade? And we're, like, not really. You know, he's, like, I don't know. I think, I think all Americans really like Jade. And we were, like, 
No, I mean, like, I'm sure it's cool, but we don't have a lot of time and there's a lot of traffic. Like, you know, we're good. He's like, no, I, I think you would love Jade. And then he would take us to this, what ended up being like a state sponsored tourist trap. Sure. And then we were, oh and he'd be goodness. like, all right, you got 45 minutes. And we were like, oh, oh for what? okay. Yeah. And we like wouldn't buy anything. And then we would just come back to the car. This happened multiple times. Oh, yeah. And we, by the end, we were like, we, you know, he'd be like, do you like tea? We're like, you know what? Yeah, it's kind of been a lot, you know, kind of hot. <laughs> wouldn't mind refreshment. Been in the car a while. Next thing you know, it's a state sponsored tea house. Wow. We did buy stuff there. That was cool. But like the final one was this architecture park. But in the end, it wasn't a trick and it wasn't like a scheme to get these tourists. It was just like he kind of realized what we were trying to do. We were there to take reference photos. And there was this absolutely incredible architecture park where they had built recreations, you know, of traditional um, architecture from all of the different uh, ethnic groups throughout China. And not all of them were to scale, but they were all built rather traditionally so it wasn't like an amusement park version of things it was an actual like as close as you could get in one location a a good way to see all of this stuff and to yeah replicas and to see them in in detail in person walk around them but you know as as we detailed in the book we only had an hour (laughs) but this is where having yeah. a partner it works to your advantage. Helpful. Mike and I divide and conquer all the time. So we just were like, you go that way, I'll go that way. And we're just <laughs> running around. It was really fun. So much in that culture that we don't know about. You know, China in general, like as far as Americans and us outside that we don't know. We don't know much about it. My girlfriend's Chinese and she's Uyghur from China. So she's teaching me stuff all the time about the other ethnicities in China, the other everything all the different Mm -hmm. cultures within it that i don't think a lot of us are aware of so it's great you guys got to do that in person absolutely and we used you know i had seen some of this architecture but certainly not uh the the breadth that was within this park and um that ended up feeding into other episodes throughout the earth kingdom and there's just really cool some of it even looked looked like a western american you know kind of like frontier town it was really wow. interesting stuff it was like um wow. very eye opening which we see in the show oh yeah yeah oh yeah yeah that's actually really interesting because i never knew until you just said that that the things i think of my dad writes books about ghost towns and mining camps in the history of the west and so i only think of it as like oh how wonderful here's a shout out to you know the kind of american frontier i didn't know that there actually was a Chinese version that, you know, kind of echoed that, or obviously the American West is echoing uh, China since one is much more ancient than the other. There's also just similarities, you know, there's different things that pop up across cultures and they might have similar design motifs. And, um, you know, we were just trying to draw inspiration and while paying homage to these, these things. So it was a short trip, but it was very fruitful. Well, and I love that this is an episode that you feel like things were really coming together and that you did shout out the entire team because uh, the background designs, you kind of talk about that in the book as well. This idea of having to present a totally different type of design to what we typically have been seeing as the team moves from place to place. We haven't really been faced with this populated, sprawling city yet. Um, do you want to shout out uh, your a couple of background designers that just like made Basing say amazing? Oh, sure. Yeah, Javon Boo. He was uh, absolutely incredible. I mean, he was always you know great to work with. Um, he was very experienced. And Elsa Garagarza, who was our background supervisor. Yeah, I, I think Enzo Baldi, you know, did some great work on that, too. And and um, and then I think even like Lauren and and the storyboard team, I think they had done some concepts at the beginning of the season. I think we had a bunch of people do concepts and some of that might have made it in there. Great. There's just a in, rewatching the episode. I was like, wow, there are a lot of locations. They're very yes. complex. Some of them are these, you know, we needed to make a big impression and just really show the sprawling population of this location but even it's not like that was the only thing and then we had really complex interiors we had the tea shop um you really get a feeling of the socioeconomics of this place they do talk about it a bit yeah you know it makes its way into the script and the storyboard a bit but i think that it was just really nice to see how design is part of storytelling and it, yeah. it really helps paint that picture even if you're not really outlining it you know and and being super 
that that's not maybe the text. It's a lot of the subtext, but um, yeah, just bouncing between the fancy people in the Tang dynasty clothing, which Angela song Mueller did incredible designs for that. And then bouncing to the tea shop and out in the streets and the lower ring, like, ah, you just really get this, this uh, more complex view of this very complex city. Yeah, we've been hearing about it for such a long time on the show, and it really pays off, which is that's got to feel good to know that it's this mythical place that we've been hearing about. And then we see it and actually not unlike the Northern Water Tribe that you when you are actually seeing it with your own eyes, you're like, oh, I get it. Yes, this is why it's this, you know, incredible place we've been hearing about. And I can tell you in TV animation, sometimes you set it up. And uh, you fall flat. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have this big thing and it does not come out the way you want it. And everyone's it's like, huh? not so impressive looking. And yeah, we were lucky that um, everybody was just firing on all cylinders for this one and, and really appreciative of it. Well, Dante, take us in. Where do we start out as we head into Bossing Say? Well, we start, we're in a pastoral scene complete with fox antelopes as an earthbender tram heads into Ba Sing Se and it's powered by earthbenders also, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And Team Avatar has reached the inner wall and so that this big guy that sits down between them, sucking on a corn, which is very <laughs> strange with weird music. I don't know, Brian, if that, if that guy somehow relates to like Invader Zim or something. It- yeah, so one of the storyboard artists was Chris Graham. We go back to the show that I was working on before co-creating Avatar with Mike. And that was Invader Zim created by Jonah Vasquez. And um, Chris uh, was and still is like one of the funniest artists I've ever worked with. And there were a lot of corn jokes on Zim. Zim had a lot of just like food (laughs) jokes that were just repeated over and over. And um, so corn featured prominently in that show. So Oh uh, yeah, I think Chris might have thrown that in, and and we were just cracking up in the storyboard meeting. So, so yeah, a little tribute, Great. classic inside jokes within yes, within the animator world. Yes, indeed. And so we're inside the wall, and and we really get a sense of the vast scope of of bossing say, and it really does pay off, and it's really it's really huge. It has that feeling when I'm flying into LA, and you're just like flying over like a half hour concrete. <laughs> exactly. It had that feeling from like, oh my god, look at this place. Where does this end? Yeah, you know, it also does. You know, because Toph talks about these kids, including Aang, Toph and Katara, Sokka. They're from the country, more or less. They're from. They're not from the city. Like, you guys don't know this stuff. This is – and you kind of like, oh, these kids have never really been to the big city. This is, like, really – and you can kind of see it in their expression, and, and it adds to, like, the awe, the awesomeness of what they're kind of seeing for the first time, which is cool. And then although from Toph's perspective, she also breaks down, like, it's just a bunch of walls and rules – because again, she comes from that world where she understands this great line. <sighs> Back in the city. Great. What's the problem? It's amazing. Just a bunch of walls and rules. You wait. You'll get sick of it in a couple of days. And the question on everyone's mind is, will they find Appa? Aang actually says, he's here. I can feel it. And the gang is met by Judy. Their apparent chaperone. That's a little strange, played by our friend Lauren Tom. How does she know that they're already there? And Sokka presses her to take them directly to the Earth King, and it's urgent. But Judy just says they'll go on a tour first. She's quick to make sure that they know that everyone is safe here. And then they go to the lower ring, populated by the newest rival, craftsman, artisan. And how many different walls can there be in one city? What's that wall for? Oh, Ba Sing Se has many walls. There are the ones outside protecting us and the ones inside that help maintain order. That's definitely not how Aang was raised by the monks, which is another great line. You kind of look at the just the two worlds of, of, of what's going on here, like this whole city way and the whole kind of modernization, at least for that time. And it also gives me some feelings of what's going to happen for Shadow Report later on in this world in Korra, because you're like, oh, mm-hmm. this place is modernizing um but then you you know ang saying we weren't raised like this we come from a different place we live a simpler life we're not into these this world it was really very cool yeah um brian you already uh mentioned the attention to detail with those different socioeconomic tiers and the idea of them kind of forming these rings um and you also it's great because you were talking about you having your own judy and that you think maybe you were connected by your line producer mike and wong <laughs> mike and wong yeah <laughs> does everyone know like yeah. 
also how Mike and Wong is represented in this uh, episode? Yeah, I think that's in the art book, too. So Mike and Wong is uh, actually Mike DiMartino and I, uh, when I first got my foot in the door in animation, Mikan was my first boss. Maybe she was the production manager on, on Family Guy. So she's one of the first people I ever met in L.A. And we worked together on that show. Mike had worked with her even previous to that on King of the Hill. You know, we're like work friends and then friends and, you know, and um, to be clear, a delightful person uh, and and kind of <laughs> infinitely chipper. And so the Judy character was not meant to be a, a you know, slight on Mike and but we were we're just sort of like using her likeness and her like impenetrable happiness. <laughs> and and uh, so but yeah, it is I now realizing yeah, it was Micah that set us up with that actual real-life Judea guy who, who was not trying to hide a war. He was just trying to get us to buy, uh, you know, knickknacks and, and souvenirs. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. And by the way, for those of you who don't know what a line producer does, it's a really thankless job. I mean, it's not, but like it is a hard job. And uh, I've worked with line producers who are like, I'm never going to be able to make this work. <laughs> like, So it's nice when you hear that somebody is optimistic and like isn't sort of weighed down because you're dealing so much with line by line items and expenses. And like you often have to be the bearer of bad news. It's like we can't afford that, everybody. So it means a lot when you hear that a line producer is upbeat and sort of charming and kind of, you know, holding on to that that brightness. Yeah, Mike and was amazing and her skills and her attitude were required because avatar was so challenging we were making any animated show is really difficult and her spirit definitely led us through i mean when i would watch you know the office came out and and the american office then came out and i remember like thinking like who has this many office parties? Like, this is so unrealistic. And then I would stop and go, Mike did this. Mike threw birthdays for every single member of the crew. But I can't really overstate how much of a part of Avatar Mike was because Aww. we knew her even before we started yeah. it. Um, she saw us, you know, through the whole thing while also line producing the entire Dora the Explorer oh, wow. thing and all the offshoots of that. So she Oof. had these two massive shows on her plate and she worked so tirelessly. So, yeah, I love her. Just another one of the, uh, you know, amazing heroes uh, yes. behind bringing this show to life. Mike and Wong. And we'll talk about her more, but Judy is very lovable and it's very clear that she is a real human being who doesn't want to be in the position that she's in. Uh, so now we're moving on. We're seeing Iroh and Zuko in this tea house where they have found jobs. Of course, Uncle Iroh is very much in his element. He's tending to the flowers. He wants the tea to be better because he, he wants everything to be at the height of what he knows it can be. Um, unsurprisingly, Zuko absolutely hates it. And we have this great exchange with Zuko and Iroh, inside of which is another quote that people absolutely love from Uncle Iroh. This city is a prison. I don't want to make a life here. Life happens wherever you are, whether you make it or not. And then we see from Jet's perspective, who, again, just is very intent on exposing these two would-be firebenders. Uh, of course, he's there with Longshot and Smellerby, and um, this isn't what they signed up for. They're sort of wondering, like, how is this our mission? We were supposed to be starting over. I don't understand why trying to expose these two guys for a thing that we didn't even see happen is us beginning a new life together. But, you know, this is Jet's mission right now. So back with Team Avatar, we learn that the middle ring is home to the financial district, to shops and restaurants, to the university, town hall. Uh, according to Toph, Judy is definitely, in quotes, handling them. She has been assigned as their handler. This is something that Toph is familiar with. Uh, we jet back over to Jet, haha, uh, spying once again continuously on Iroh and Zuko at the tea house. Iroh's totally grossed out by the tea. He's going to have to make some changes. Uh, and then we quickly zing back over to the gang, seeing the upper ring where we see the most important citizens, according to some, uh, and then yet another wall, which uh, leads to ultimately we see that the royal palace is there. And Judy is telling everyone about the agents of the Dai Li, which it's true is sort of vague in a way that is unsettling. I mean, for me anyway, as a viewer, I'm like, hmm... 
Those men are agents of the Dai Li, the cultural authority of Ba Sing Se. They are the guardians of all our traditions. What does that mean? Because it sounds like it's saying a lot without actually saying anything. And I don't know if that was like the intention, but this feels like the runaround, uh, even though you're supposedly telling us something very specific about who these guys are. And finally, she takes them to their new home. Uh, and the good news is that they, you know, as much as they wanted to see the king, you know, they would have loved to have seen him right as they uh, neared the royal palace. It's just not that simple. But their request has been submitted. And in about a month a.k.a. six to eight weeks, uh, listen, it might really happen. So what are you going to do with this free time? At least they can look for Appa, right? This is also a huge priority. Uh, but Judy is, she, again, she's stuck like glue. She is definitely going to make sure she's with them at all times. Uh, when we see them head to a pet shop to see if, you know, who would know about uh, Nair Bison? Uh, pet shop? Um, so they head into the pet shop and, uh, we see a, a sort of scary cat owl, which I love because we have great horned owls in my neighborhood and they look exactly like cats when they're sitting on the top of trees. You're like, how did that cat get up there? Ah, it's an owl. And this pet shop owner doesn't know anything about any kind of black market for animals because, you know, maybe that's why Appa was brought into Bossing Say as we found out when we were back in the desert. But it's also hard to say if he's saying that because that's true or because he's getting uh, some cues from Judy. There's a lot of nervous sweating happening here. And uh, and then, of course, we have some Sparrow Keats who harass poor Momo, um, even though it's he's accused of it being the other way around. And then we head to the university. Yeah, the gang makes it to the university uh, and a bookish student who I should note is voiced by Scott Manville, who was the voice of Kevin on a show that Mike and I and Aaron Ehaz worked on together and John O'Brien actually called uh, Mission Hill. So yes. some more kind of lineage of, of yes. our uh, animation friends and coworkers. Um, so this that. bookish student nervously says he hasn't seen anything, doesn't know anything. Again, getting some cues from Judy behind Team Avatar's shoulders. But the student says they should talk to Professor Zay of Desert Cultures. That could prove a little tough since Professor Zay is in the library submerged in sand by Wan Chi Tong. <laughs> True. So uh, not so convenient. <laughs> Don't think the cell service is very good down there. <laughs> Probably not. Um, so Sock asks Judy about the war with the Fire Nation, but Judy does her cheerful deflection and drops him off at the end of the day. Across the street, someone peeks out of their house, pleased to see the Avatar. Look, I'm just a minor government official. I've waited three years to get this house. I don't want to get into trouble. Get in trouble with who? Shh, shh, shh. Listen, you can't mention the war here. And whatever you do, stay away from the Dai Li. Um, yeah, I love that, like, kind of vague, yeah. seemingly harmless description that they're kind of cultural keepers or whatever. But it, it, And it reminds me of the sort of... Uh, double talk you get in in our own kind of government and media where there are these sort of veiled things and one thing means something else and sort of yeah. dog whistles and stuff like that so that night jet once again spies on zuko and iroh in their living space uh, iroh can't imagine why anyone would be sick of tea as, since zuko's complaining after working all day in the tea shop but iroh <laughs> can't find the spark rocks jet stole um that's one of those things where we try to come up with avatar specific things you know sometimes it's uh -huh. to avoid like a kind of standards and practices note um you don't want imitable behavior like you know we have people shooting fire out of their fists but they maybe can't use a lighter so we come up with <laughs> things like that but um Got or it. maybe we just did it ourselves we just wanted to have some kind of avatar specific kind of like a flint rock. rock yeah, yeah. so yeah, but the, in our world, they're like That's the little green crystals or something. So, yeah. Uh, unfortunately for Jet, instead of firebending, Iroh just borrows their neighbors. I guess he took Zuko's, uh, heeded Zuko's warning about using his firebending. Um, so, the next morning, Katara gets an idea as she reads the paper. The Earth King is having a party for his bear. And we get into this whole platypus bear, skunk bear, armadillo bear, gopher bear, and Nope, it's just a bear. And, yeah, I'm uh, trying to remember who we had on the show. I can't remember if it was Tim or John O'Brien or Josh. But, like, it's been so fun having the writers on because you do get this sort of inside baseball where comedy writers are some of my favorite people and many of them are so self-effacing. Like, there's not a lot of ego there. And so 
whoever it was was quick to say, like, I don't know. We thought we were so funny for coming up with a bear that was just a bear. And like, that sounds like John O'Brien. That? <laughs> so that's very, that's a very John O'Brien. Like we response. really patted ourselves on the yeah. back for coming up with a non-hybrid. Some of the hybrid animals are like, oh, this is so weird here because he only has a bear. It felt like that was more special. We just had like a solo animal. I've grumbled about this through the years. Um, I just used to draw hybrid animals as a kid. It was just something I did. It wasn't. I wasn't trying to be clever or whatever. I had a actually. I have it right here. I have a uh, here he is. Oh, I have an opus. Yes, yes. And growing up on opus, you know, I was reading the comic, and he was supposed to be a penguin, but he didn't look like a penguin to me. <laughs> no. But I liked that Berkeley Breath had never explained it. You know, that's just yeah. that's just what he looks like. So honestly, we have opus to thank for all of the hybrid animals in the avatar world. Because when I was a kid and and really inspired by Bloom County and Opus, that's I would just draw all these different hybrid animals. It really sparked this animation. And then, you know, then I went through puberty and I got into playing guitar and I didn't really draw for myself anymore. I would draw in school, you know, in art class. And then I ended up going to a magnet school where I drew, I got to draw, you know, have a lot of art classes, but I really stopped drawing for myself as much and it wasn't until kind of during zim started trying to develop a show and draw for myself i just started drawing hybrid animals again hmm. without thinking about it it was just this kind of natural returning to being like a kid but the writers being comedy writers they want to make a joke out of everything <laughs> everything's got to be a joke and i don't think that way you know yeah. and or the jokes i want to make are kind of more character based right. so they were just like so what, what do we have in this world? There's hybrid animals. Oh, let's make something that's just disgusting and freaky. And let's make something that's funny. And then let's make all these jokes about it. Like how yeah. absurd can we be? Yeah. That was not the way I wanted to deal with it. To me, they were just <laughs> normal animals in the avatar world. And they would right. just kind of yes. like Oppo was just a bison. We didn't really call it a bison manatee, even though that's what he was. But that was what the animal was in this world. Yeah. So they had like f- spent the first half of the series just making all these jokes about the hybrid animals. Then they're like, won't it be funny to make a joke about not having a hybrid animal? And I was just like, right. If okay. you must. But, to balance. But I love bears. So, and the bear yeah. in the little royal outfit was cool too. So. Yeah. And the fact that the king had the bear, I think also for as an, me as an audience member watching it, it was like, oh, well, if the king has the only bear, it's got to be valuable. It's a king. It's got to be special. Yeah. And I, look, it is mm-hmm. funny. And I, I have gotten the sense anecdotally through the years that the fans enjoy this little bit of banter so they do um the writers did their job they they, they were hired to be funny and that's what they do kudos they kudos do. to the writers well listen and good thing he has that bear because it seems like that's going to be their way in right right so katara comes up with the idea that they can get into the party and speak to the king but toff is skeptical that they're not high society enough excuse me i've got no manners you're not exactly lady fancy fingers uh I learned proper society behavior and chose to leave it. You never learned anything. And frankly, it's a little too late. Aha, but you learned it. You could teach us. Yeah, I'm mastering every element. How hard can manners be? Aang and Sokka don't exactly prove her wrong, bowing repeatedly and smacking their heads into (laughs) each other. That evening, Aang and Sokka play a version of Rochambeau with Earth, the fist, beating fire, wiggly fingers, I love that little detail. I had totally it's, forgotten about that. I was, I was wondering that. about that detail because I have a question about alert. that detail. Hold on yeah. one okay. second. How does Earth beat fire? I think it, it snuffs it out. Yeah, it snuffs it out. Oh, yeah, Barney. It snuffs yeah. it out like that. It's just like, how does paper beat rock? It That's never right. occurred to me to, to worry about why Earth beat fire. But of course, Dante's going to be like, hold up, hold up, hold up. I need some clarification. <laughs> hold up, hold how up, do hold they up. tell time in this world? <laughs> we know. Well, don't Wait mess with this firebending. Does... Fire will beat paper for sure. I know that 100%. <laughs> that is true. Well, we don't have a lot of paper vendors. I mean, I guess that would also be an earthbender, but whatever. Um, yeah, I love that detail. It made so much sense to me. Like, of course, wiggly fingers. That's fire. Absolutely. Yeah, I love always seeing, you know, like Dave Filoni came up with the cool sort of solitaire game in the Avatar world that uses the four elements. And and then, you know, the writers came up with Pai Show and and then later we did Pro Bandit. I, I love when there's like games within a world. It, yes. it just gives it its own sense of... Uh, culture and history and that's unique to the fantasy world so that's great so 
we reveal that Katara and Toph are all dressed up in their fancy high society clothing. Uh, so they'll get to sneak into the party and then they'll let Aang and Sokka in through the side gate. This is the plan anyway. Mm-hmm. And you also you already mentioned Angela's amazing designs for, yeah. for Katara and Toph and, and others in the sort of higher echelons of Bossing Say. What'd you say was it is it the Tang Dynasty? Yeah, the Tang Dynasty. We use that for um, really beautiful, kind of elegant so clothing. A lot of flowing silks, and I, I don't have all my fabric words down. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm not going to accurately describe it. The chiffon. Clear. There might be some chiffon <laughs> right? and some embroidery. Brocade. Um, uh huh. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was fun. It was great. Really rough on the animators. You know, everybody has these headpieces sure. and all of this. <sighs> patterning you know on the trim of their clothing which is really difficult but yeah angela loves doing like fancy dress and stuff so she knocked it out of the park it was great love it all right take us back to the tea house dante so we're back at the tea house and we're really getting a sense of how committed jet is on spying on iron zuka and trying to out them as firebenders he's really dedicated at this moment and it's also evident to yeah. smellerby and longshot who are worried about how obsessed he's become what about the fresh start they were talking about Jet, you've got to stop this. Maybe you've forgotten why we need to start over. Maybe you've forgotten about how the Fire Nation left us all homeless? How they wiped out all the people we loved? If you don't want to help me, I'll get the evidence on my own. And then finally, Jet decides he's going to have to get physical. And so he just busts into the tea shop, wielding his his hook swords. And uh, he basically just approaches Iron Zuko and, and will have them defend themselves with firebending, he just calls him out. But Jet wasn't counting at all on Zuko, non-firebending, pulling out his double broadswords, and we start this epic, epic fight. Now we go back to the palace, and we're at the palace now with Toph and Katara, and Toph busts out her Bayfunk passport, which is obviously, you know, in the past, got through all kinds of things, but it doesn't seem to work right here as the gang is not getting into this party. And then they see a man approach and they have an idea. And so Katara rushes the guy and he's like, my cousin's blind and lost our invitations. Can he help him get them in? And he's like, yeah, he can. So they get ushered in inside this famous bear, the king, who seems to be eating all the good stuff. We discover that the man who helped Katara and Toph get into the party is Long Fang. And no matter what they do, they can't seem to get away from him. It's beautiful, isn't it? By the way, I'm Long Fang. I'm a cultural minister to the king. Now, where is your family? I'd love to meet them. He's not going to desert them, not before they find their families. What a nice guy. And I have to say, anytime we hear Clancy Brown's voice, yeah. uh, for me, I, I kind of sit up and take notice. You know, we love Clancy. So kind, so warm, so wonderful. Right. Of course, he's Mr. Krabs, for those of you who enjoy SpongeBob. But he has one of the all-time great voices. He worked on Cora. He was one of those people that I remember, like, going over to Mike and Brian and being like, thank you so much for continuing to bring my heroes into this room because <laughs> it's just another person that I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to work with him except for now. And one of my favorite voice actors playing one of your favorite villains, right, Brian? Adversaries. Thank you, oh, adversary. Yeah. And like, yes, he is very nice, but I grew up, you know, on Highlander. Mm. That was my introduction to Clancy Brown. And yes. terrifying. he is one of the scariest you know, there are some uh, regrettable things in that film. Uh, it's an 80s, you know, kind of male-driven film. But <laughs> but Clancy's performance as the Krugan is one of the most, like, spine-tingling, bone-chilling performances of a villain ever. He is also a physically imposing person. Yes. Very, quite very tall, intimidating. Quite tall. And uh, has that voice. It's a yeah. big voice. And... um. When I found out he was a voice in SpongeBob, that just about blew my mind. That's like two worlds that I never thought were even in the same universe coming together. And Shawshank. He's so ominous in in Shawshank. So good in Shawshank. But at this point in in Bossing Say, he's the first normal person you hear. Because everyone else is kind of scared or robotic. Maybe something weird's going on. And then this guy's cool. Yeah, it's true. He's very comfortable. And it's also... You know, you still get that feeling, even though he's like, yeah, I'll help you guys. He's like, he's the first regular person. You're like, okay, who's this guy? Mm-hmm. I'm getting, and then he shows up like, I'm not going to lose you guys. And you're like, oh, no, this is now also weird. Even though you sound regular, it's feeling very weird. 
Yeah. yeah. And it's I, Clancy, so it's I think Tim and the writers did a really good job uh, rewatching the episode. I was like, oh, this is how we introduced Long Fang. It's so disarming. I love that he just it's seems disarming. like some high society person that they pick out of a crowd. And we slowly reveal, and then he and he downplays his own role. Oh, I'm a yes. cultural minister, and then oh, well, I am actually the Grand Secretariat, and then oh, actually, I run the Earth Kingdom. You know, like it's <laughs> it's a really beautiful like onion skin sort yes. of like peeling back. And yes. again, I think Tim and the writers did a great job plotting that. And then I think Clancy just he just did such a great job. It, give it, there's a warmth to his voice when you first meet him, and then he can dial up that yeah. that kind of intimidation, you know, throughout yeah. this episode and the subsequent ones. Oh, it's so good. Are you tired of people telling you nitpicky things you don't want to hear about yourself? Stuff like, you eat with your fingers too much, or why are your feet so dirty, or that's the 14th time you've burped in the last 10 minutes. If you're fed up with it, enroll yourself at Miss Ladyfinger's School of Manners and Etiquette. With our professional and rigorous program, you'll learn how to tune out anyone who criticizes your manners or lack thereof. So stick that finger in that nose and head on down to Miss Ladyfinger's School of Manners and Etiquette. <sighs> That's the stuff. So there we have his intimidating but seemingly warm presence inside. Outside, we see that Aang and Sokka and Momo are waiting. Are they going to get in? This is not, you know, the plan was the girls were going to get them access and bring them inside. And it's just not happening. Um, and so we have this wonderful moment. You know, a lot of these high society events we see in uh, thrillers and action adventures and spy movies Luckily, catering can carry people through. And that happens here. We see that there are some busboys who are getting ready to go inside. And uh, true to tradition, uh, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I think I have an idea. And they are going to be able to sneak in as, and I'm using this in very big quotes, the help. It's a trope that I actually never get tired of because it so speaks to the socioeconomic, like, kind of, no one pays attention to the people who are actually doing all of the work. And I, I, I just kind of love that. Um, and so I love that they're like, oh, well, we're going to get in this way because, you know, we'll pass in unseen. Um, then we go back to this fight that's happening, this epic fight that you talked about before, Brian, and Dante is being, you know, so long and so great. Um, if you have the art book, you can see a really cool series of photos from the video recording that Brian and Sifu Kisu made. Then you see the sketches uh, that are made from that. And then you see how they turn into images from the episode. There's a great slow-mo moment as Zuko's machete slices Jet's wheat. The best. Which, I don't know if that's like best. a stand-in, you know, the like rebel guy who always has the smoke in his mouth. And I wondered if that was like a thing. No, but. it wasn't a cigarette thing. I think it was in um, Kihyun Ryu's original design of Jet. He just had this wheat thing coming out of his lip. I mean, I, I always associate that with like Tom Sawyer, Huck exactly. Finn. Yeah. You know, you just kind of have it's like the country boy mm -hmm. who's just got the little twig. That's right. Um, so, yeah. And then I've got to correct myself. I think I said the Krugan. It's the Kurgan. Clancy okay. Brown played the Kurgan. So it was it's the so. Kurgan. So in the ballroom, Toph finds the guys. She's, she instantly knows they're there in part because she recognizes Twinkle Toes' footsteps. Um, but there is Judy. And I have to say. Judy, where have you been? Because we all know that you've been tasked with watching these kiddos and she is clearly extremely stressed that she's been tasked with this. She's got the responsibility and it clearly means something to her that isn't good, that she did not know that they were going to be there and that she didn't stop it from happening. So she's trying to get them out of there. They need to leave or they're going to be in terrible trouble. Um, during all of this, Aang accidentally hits a woman, just completely drenches her with water. Then he tries to help by kind of blow drying her with his airbending, uh, resulting in this sort of frozen, uh, freakish look. And um, you'd think she'd be mad, but she's actually not because, wait a minute, this is the Avatar. So everyone is staring and then to kind of buy time and make the best of it, as we have seen Aang do in the past, he sort of 
puts on a fun show standing on top of the table. But I have to say the colored light ball that he does, even though we're sort of chuckling to ourselves because we know he's kind of like, yeah, there's a little song and dance here. It's actually really beautiful. That's one of the things I love in this episode is like, I want to see that in real life. That's a beautiful piece of like air and light work. And then, of course, at the tea house, we have the fight. It continues to go on. But the Dai Li arrives. Someone, they've caught wind of it. And as they shut down this fight, much as Jet, you know, sort of insists that this is, you know, come on, these are firebenders. Look, you you, you got to believe me. Um, everyone's kind of vouching for Iroh and Zuko. Jet is not believed. And in fact, he is arrested and taken away. Not good for Jet. All right. We go back to the ballroom where the king arrives, but Team Avatar can't even get close. The Dai Li snatch Sokka, then Katara and Toph, even Momo. Yeah, I love the Dai Li. We, they were really fun to design, and uh, I, I remember using my own hand and the kind of lines in my hand to figure out what the segments of rock tile would be, and and, and they weren't flat. You know, They had to yeah. kind of conform to the curve of a hand and be able to pose um but again that's a really tricky thing for uh 2d animators to do and and the the jm animation team and and uj myung who did the animation direction on this episode like they just did such a great job with all of that and super um, so i love long fang but i also love the dai li i think it's really creepy the idea of this kind of grappling but at at range you know usually think of of kind of china like these these grappling techniques as being a very close quarters fighting thing but if someone can do that to you from across the room you know what a handy thing to have when you're trying to run a sort of uh, police state so yes yeah. all right ang might stand a chance uh at reaching the king but long fang intercepts him introducing himself as grand secretariat of bossing say and head of the Dai Li. long fang has a stern talk with everyone in his creepy library um yeah that was a really fun design yeah um i think javon boo did that design and brian evans did the painting and i think the writer's like oh no it was lauren it was lauren mcmullen the director she really wanted a fire behind long fang and we were like well in the earth kingdom they they tend to use the green crystals which little world building there the green crystals are are from catacombs you know from natural caves below bossing say and actually mm. that is how bossing say way back in the day amassed its wealth was from wow. having this resource that was unique to that region and then there was the the sort of silk road of the avatar world where that was traded people all over the world found this very useful this was a, as almost like uh electricity in a way you know these were like light bulbs that didn't need to be plugged in. And so I was like, well, you know, he would just have crystals. But Lauren really wanted a fire. So we did see Iroh use the spark rocks, which kind of looked like the green crystal. So we thought, well, maybe these crystals actually, maybe a certain kind of them have, you know, they can catch on yeah. fire. They can burn. Yeah. Um, so that gave us a chance to do this creepy green fire, which still felt very Earth Kingdom. So cool. You know, it's great. So, and it, may, it gives a weird extra, you know, spooky vibe to the light. And a foreshadow report, I think. You know what I mean? Like there's a sense of like, huh, there's a type of fire in the Earth Kingdom. Maybe that's not totally off limits as we see certain alliances forming later in the season. So I also love it for that reason, even if it was totally unintentional. Mm. Green crystal. All right. So despite what you might expect, we find out that the Earth King has uh, no time to get involved in political squabbles in the day-to-day minutia of military activities. In fact, it would seem he's only the head of cultural matters. Long Fang is the authority over all things war. So the king is just a figurehead. He's your puppet. Oh, no, no. His majesty is an icon, a god to his people. He can't sully his hands with the hourly changes of an endless war. And as for the people of Bossing Say, apparently the authorities can't tell people the truth. They think they can't handle it. Just then, we see that while this is happening, Jet is being thrown into a jail, then hypnotized by a Dai Li agent with a rotating lamp, saying... There's no war in Bossing Say. There is no war within the walls. Here we are safe. 
here we are free. I think it's appropriate that I'm reading this line because I remember (laughs) a a meme going around of Uh me that some fan put my face on this Dai Li agent. (laughs) And the joke was that. The joke was that I was saying there is no movie. There is no movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I've always loved that meme. Um, So again, I I, I think it's appropriate I was doing this part of the recap. It sure turned out that way. Uh, It was on purpose. We meant to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Go ahead and take that credit. (laughs) Amazing. All right. So now they can uh, update that meme with actual audio of me saying. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so Aang stands up to Long Fang. He will tell everyone, but Long Fang says no in in a much more commanding Clancy Brown voice than than I am able to muster. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, they will be watched by Dai Li agents, and if they say anything about the war, they'll be expelled from the city. And just to tighten the screw, Long Fang tosses a reference to finding Appa in there for good measure. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for Judy to escort the gang home. But eerily, it's not our Judy. It's another one. End of episode. So strange. Oh, it's so creepy in that 1984 kind of way. The the sort of idea of like, oh, we have no idea what's going on. We have no control over what's going on. And and also kind of Twilight Zone-y. Just that, that feeling of like everything's off and you feel like off balance as a viewer on behalf of team avatar it's like i don't know how to wrap my head around this and i don't know enough to know what to do it's so good and so creepy i think there's also a layer of team avatar being kids and they're going deeper into an adult world and our heroes are they're smart you know they're fairly mature and 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 they're very capable but they haven't been exposed to the absurdity of adult civilization, you know, adult right. society where politics, but not just like, oh, this party versus that party, just power politics and um, yeah, right. corruption and greed. And if we go back long enough, who knows, maybe the origins of how this whole thing got set up, they might have thought they were doing what was right. You know, they might have thought they were actually helping, but that can get warped and people can lose sight of the goals. And I I think there's a sort of innocence lost in this episode. The kids are sort of like, hey, I mean, we're obviously we have information that can help. These people are in charge, so they would want that information. And then we can stop this war. Doesn't everybody want that except for the Fire Nation? And (laughs) they're running into, it's not so easy as good guys, bad guys, villains and heroes, you know, it's, and we love delving into that in the Avatar world, just all these shades of gray, all these complexities that reflect even just a fraction of what is, is out there in our real world. We've gone a few episodes of us building up Bossing Say as this place, this hopeful place. We're going to get to this place, this wonderful place that is it's hope. Like, you know, to talk about how Iroh couldn't get into it. We got to get there. And then you get there and it's like, whoa, hold up. What? It's not, it's totally blows your mind. Not exactly what you expect. Even at the beginning of the episode, it's like, oh, Bossing Say, we're here. Look at this amazing place. And then it's like, we're in the twilight zone. That's what's happening in all that gray area. And we've talked about in the past is one of the wonderful things about Avatar. Uh, like Janet was saying, it's like there's two sides of everything. It's not like Earth Kingdom is all good or all bad. Or yeah. there's gray areas. There's good and bad in every element. It's not like a other shows where it's like these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Hold on a second. There's good and yeah. bad in every, even the Air Nomads. Of course, the water tribe. Even within each character, you know, we try to show even within each character. True, every person has positive and negative attributes, and and is my own personal worldview is that virtually every person is a contradiction in some degree, in some form, um, you know, some more than others. But that I think is kind of the human condition. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, The idea of let's go to the one place that has the infrastructure that might actually be able to do something about the Fire Nation and then to just be told by that exact set of people, there is no war. Sorry. Like, why would we? Oh, it's so frustrating. Um, I wanted to ask you guys a quick question. Now, we've made a big deal about how Bosco is not a hybrid, uh, but there's actually another seemingly non-hybrid animal that we see in this episode. Can either of you think of what it is? Design wise, the sparrowkeets just kind of look like parakeets. <laughs> that mm-hmm. might have been a failing of the. Uh, <laughs> that might have been one that the 
the writer's room came up with and it it sounded like a nice alliteration and then and then angie and i were like what do we do with this because <laughs> sparrows still two and parakeets kind of look similar you know yeah, similar enough they're both birds. so that's the only one i could think of but um maybe in the pet well, store i might have missed very something. close but at the end we see yeah. a blue jay there's a little oh, blue jay in the foreground yeah. and then in the background we see the city and i looked it up okay. i was like wait a minute is that a hybrid and then i looked it up and everywhere i looked it just looked like it's a blue jay it's a bluebird it's actually a marsupial blue jay you know it's got it's got like a pouch it carries its young in a pouch (laughs) we can't see it but it's there (laughs) i was so excited for you that we had like taken the air out of the the bosco being so precious and the writers being so smug and now unfortunately we've just right back there we're right back there because it's a marsupial (laughs) Okay, listen, you're the boss, Dad. You're the boss. And side note, I know some people listening always ask me about Bosco the Bear because my last name is Bosco. We have covered it in past ones, but if you haven't heard the past episode, Bosco is actually named after a friend of Brian's, right? Yeah, someone who worked on uh, both Avatar and Korra. Um, The inspiration for the way June looked and the inspiration for May's personality. That's our, our good friend, Lisa Yang. So she had two pets that we, we named it characters in the Avatar world after Nyla, the Shirshu, which Shirshu. was June's. And then uh, Bosco was her other dog. And, and I was go. lucky to know both dogs and they were they were awesome. So. so me and Bosco the bear just share the name, you guys. We share, share the, the name. name, but not the A because he's got a couple exactly. of O's. Okay, so really with the hybrids, I think we just do see those sparrow keats and the cat owl and then our usual um, our usual buddy Momo. Um, what do you guys think about who has the most valuable bending moment in the episode? Hmm. Oh, man. Hmm. It's not a big bending episode. Would it be Aang blowing that woman dry? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, you're probably right. If it's going to be her, can't it be the ball? The ball was beautifully animated, but yeah. the woman went from being very upset to actually being quite pleased. So I feel like exactly. Aang <laughs> turned that frown point. upside down, you know? And that whole That's moment where he didn't mean to reveal himself as an avatar, but that actually progressed the story and progressed yeah. for them to actually talk to Dylee about what they're really there to do. That yeah. moment got to that place. That Oh, he's the avatar. That's true. Now we got to really... Kind the of. Dai Li probably did the most impressive bending mm-hmm. in the yes, episode. Of course. Valuable to whom? Valuable That's to whom? the problem. Exactly. We've had some most valuable bending happen to people who were uh, very much in conflict with our heroes. Very true. But we just had to give it up because it was really important right. and got it done. So I don't know that we shouldn't give it to the Dai Li. I'm going with Dai Li. I'm yeah, I'm going with Dai Li because I'm with you that was gloves. a new, very specialized form of bending that we hadn't seen before of, of, of earth bending. And it gets really creepy when they're restraining Jet. Yes. They took like the palms of the rock gloves and they like mashed them onto his head and oh, formed this yeah. restraint. Mm-hmm. It's all terrible and scary, but it is. It's so, yeah, I'm, go- I'm going with Tylee too, Janet. Tylee. All right. And then most valuable non-bending. There's a lot of non-bending moments that are happening here. Mm. A lot of plans, a lot of. I mean, I'm going to vote for Zuko's restraint. And it's a good not one. Not bending during his epic battle. It's, good. it's really good. Yeah, I think the hook sword versus double broadsword fight that Dean Kelly did an incredible job. Uh, Dean Kelly is someone I went to RISD with, um, and uh, he was always really good at action. And that again, I I mean it's it's chopped up that scene. Right. No pun intended. We we come back to this fight multiple times, and it's still going on. And you know, to keep it interesting, we had it progress from interior to exterior in different locations. And I think Jet and Zuko, it's a tie for some great sword work. I think, mm-hmm. they did a I think it's job. a tie, too. But, you know, for all those fans out there, myself, I love Jet. Jet's one of my favorite characters, you know, very, you know, it's one of those characters that go either way in people's minds. But I love that character. It's an anti-hero. Yeah, the anti-hero. There's that moment of a bromance going on with Zuko and Jet. And this sure. is definitely the end of it, right? It's <laughs> over. The bromance is I know, ended. it was so short. Every bromance has a little really fist fight, a little tussle, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm willing to give it up to them, too, not just because it's such a great sequence in the course of the entirety of Avatar, but I agree with you, Dante. I think we have seen Zuko lose his temper and make a bad decision in a, in a situation yeah. where all he had to do was the exact opposite of what he lets happen, and he does it here. He does not firebend. He's tapping into that blue spirit in him that is, you know, keeping it, it. keeping it about the swords. Again, we talk about it each episode, it seems like, but like these little steps that he takes towards becoming a more responsible human being that eventually takes him to foreshadow report where we know he goes, you know, and he's seeing somebody who can't control himself, right? He, he sees they have this these things in common and Jet just comes out raging and Zuko knows what that rage is like and yet is able to, you know, just kind of keep it together and fight brilliantly. So I totally agree. That takes us to the end of this episode. Oh my gosh, Brian, thank you so much. It's really like, I feel like we're in the library with, uh, hopefully not Wan Chi Tong, but we're in the library when we have <laughs> you. We just like, you pull out these books and then all of a sudden we're hearing about this whole other layer of the show. So this has been so much fun. I hope you had a good time. Totally. Thanks for having me. Always great to be a part of this. And thanks for continuing to do your great work for the Avatar world. No doubt. We love it. Uh, it's always great. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to Avatar Braving the Elements. And hey, make sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a review. All of that really helps the podcast so much. And we love you guys. Next week, we'll be joined by the incredible voice actress who played Judy, Lauren Tom. You can follow me on social media at the JV Club on Instagram and at Janet Varney on Twitter. And I'm at Dante Bosco on both of those. We'll see you next Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.